makes you such a threat? We choose the right to be who we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with Earth and a way not to live with Earth. We choose the way of Earth. It's about power. Chasha. Greetings and good day and welcome my relatives. I shake your hands with good feelings in my heart. It's a good day for all of us to be here. In addition to relativity, this is First Voices Radio and I send you greetings and strength on the east gate of Turtle Island where the sun and the water touch the earth at once. I'm Teokas and Ghost Horse and this is an all-native host at all-native produced First Voices Radio and Liz Hill is a producer of First Voices Radio. Our studio engineer is Malcolm Byrne, and you can now hear us on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Spotify, as well as First Voices, IndigenousRadio.org for archive, downloading, and listening. In this episode, I discuss a topic of land acknowledgments with three guests, and this inspiration for this conversation was an article published on October 7th in The Conversation, an online nonprofit independent news outlet. And the name of the article was Land Acknowledgements Meant to dis- meant to Honor Indigenous People to Often Do the Opposite, Erasing American Indians and Sanitizing History and Said. And I was honored to interview the three authors of the article, Valerie Lambert, an enrolled citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, who is an associate professor of anthropology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And uh, she is president of the Association of Indigenous Anthropologists, section of the American Anthropological Association. Also, Michael Lambert, an enrolled citizen of the Eastern Band of Cherokee, who is an associate professor of African Studies and Anthropology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And Eliza E.J. Sobo, professor and chair of anthropology at San Diego State University. And E.J. is a sociocultural anthropologist and a past president of the Society for Medical Anthropology. I encourage you to read the article and find out more about our three guests. And now, Valerie Lambert, Michael Lambert, and E.J. Sobo. Thank you all for being here. It's so great that we are here to acknowledge that we need to be acknowledged in a different way, Native people, in this, <laughs> in, in this uh, quandary of trying to get things across for about 500 plus years. But um, I need to welcome you here. And I almost feels long overdue. I want to just welcome you all here to First Voices Radio, Valerie Lambert and Michael Lambert and E.J. Sobo, all anthropologists looking to 
help this idea of land acknowledgement in order to, to recognize what's here already. What we've tried to do on First Voices is put together a present thought that we are here and not in the past, or we are we in the future, but we're here now because our languages are stating that we are conscious now, as well as those other extremes of the past and the future. So with that, I was so interested. Well, first of all, welcome all three of you to First Voices Radio. It's an honor to have you here. Well, thank you. It's our honor to be here. Absolutely. Thank you so very much. What I wanted to have you on for was just that I came across an article published online through The Conversation, which is a nonprofit independent news organization. And the article is entitled Land Acknowledgements Meant to Honor Indigenous Peoples Too Often Do the Opposite, Erasing American Indians and Sanitizing History and Said. Let's begin with you, Valerie Lambert, Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of North Carolina. Valerie? It came out of a larger movement of indigenous anthropologists within the American Anthropological Association. There are only about 30 indigenous anthropologists. Almost all of us are American Indians uh, and enrolled members of federally recognized tribes. Uh, We have a larger organization called the Association of Indigenous Anthropologists that we allow anyone to join that. Um, Our leadership has been strictly uh, restricted to enrolled members of federally recognized tribes. But we became, we were formed in 2008 uh, by uh, Joe Allen Arshambo, who was enrolled in, or is enrolled in the Standing Rock uh, Sioux Tribe. And she worked with B. Medicine, who is also uh, enrolled, or was enrolled in the uh, Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and uh, formed this organization, which uh, has been going for for 13 years. And um, to make a long story short, we had three pressing issues that uh, we had been uh, confronting the Association of uh, American Anthropological Association with for many, many years. We had, we, it fell upon deaf deaf ears. You know, they just didn't listen to us until uh, Murray Leaf and EJ uh, came along and said, wait a minute, you know, Let's pay attention to what the indigenous anthropologists are saying. We had three main uh, issues. One was a complete unwillingness of anthropology to come to terms with the past significant harm uh, that it has done to American Indians, and that harm is continuing. That continues to happen with anthropology. Uh, so E.J. and Murray responded to that demand by forming a task force, uh, which is, uh, it's, they're, they're already doing their work to systematically examine, you know, that harm done to us by the field of anthropology. Um, another thing is uh, complete unwillingness of anthropology to credit uh, Indians with help with helping develop anthropology. Uh, we American anthropology was built upon the backs of the study of American Indian people. So, <laughs> and yet we were receiving no credit whatsoever. So one of the first steps toward uh, honoring uh, American Indian contributions to the development of the field was uh, when EJ and Murray uh, agreed to and got pushed through the uh, the uh, executive board uh, a waiver so that uh, all of the fees uh, for membership, uh, which is like 250 dollars plus you know it's for me it's 264 dollars 
Um, and then uh, the the annual meeting fees of $245, this is every year. So that is completely waived now uh, due to EJ and Murray's work. Um, and you have to be an enrolled member of a federally recognized tribe. You upload your tribal membership card and uh, then that is approved, et cetera. And then the last initiative is where this land acknowledgement comes from. We were sick and tired uh, of being asked uh, to give blessings to to open uh, the anthropology meetings, uh, to, to uh, participate in some way uh, in land acknowledgements. We, furthermore, we were being pushed out of the way by pretendians, you know, people who were claiming Indian identity, but who were not Indian people who were actually volunteering to AAA and saying, let me do the blessing. You know, I want to do this. So it looked as though we wanted to do this. We push back against that. And uh, fortunately, EJ and Murray decided to listen to the Indians <laughs> saying, no, we don't want to do this anymore. You know, we don't feel comfortable blessing the meetings because uh, up until that point, there had been no effort to come to terms with uh, the past harm the field has caused or, or to credit us with contributing. Um, so now we're feeling a little bit you know, better uh, about that because uh, we feel like for the very first time ever, uh, non-Indian anthropologists, and it's really just two of them that I can tell, you know, have, have actually wanted to hear what we have to say. Uh, so the land acknowledgement came out of that because uh, EJ, you know, sort of pushed that and said, oh, you know, this is really fascinating, really interesting. I want to learn more. I want to understand where you all are coming from, et cetera. And it was her idea really to, to hatch the article. And I'm just so glad she did because I agree, it really needs to be said. We've gotten a lot of comments back from Indian people saying, gosh, you know, thank goodness, you know, it's long overdue. EJ, Valerie mentioned that you had put the brakes on the ideas that, wait, there, there's not something fully being hashed out here. Would you explain your participation in that beginning, EJ Sobo? My participation and Murray's participation, I think is just happy accident. You know, for some reason, we happened to get elected to these positions. I'm the convener of the section assembly um, and the AIA is one of the sections of the American Anthropological Association. So there are 40 sections and there are a number of interest groups and every year they put in, um, not they, but all of the sections and all of the interest groups put in an annual report. And so I had been brought in, I was, what do they call it, convener elect. And I saw the annual reports and I, I you know, saw what was going on. Then when it was my turn and I've actually become convener, I read the reports and it was the same thing again. And so I started to say, uh, and then Murray came in at the same time and we were like, well, wait a minute, if they've said this before, what's happening? Isn't it our job to elevate the concerns of the sections, all of the sections? I mean, not just the AIA, but all the sections, but this one really, it resonated with me. It resonated with Murray for, for various reasons. And we said, you know what, this is our job. We have to bring this forward. And, um, I don't know, maybe it's because Marie and I are old. We'll just do it. We don't care. <laughs> we don't care. So um, fortunately, we were able to get some momentum there. And the triple, the executive board did agree to form this task force. And the task force is looking at all of these issues that Valerie just described. And they will be providing some guidance that should be due in November of 2022. So they were given 18 months, which is a short time for a big study. 
but we got to do something. We can't just sit around. So hopefully when they come forward, they're not going to ask for renewal. They will have some guidelines. And I just want to be sure to emphasize that the pause here is a pause to stop and reflect and think. And, but it's not a, a full stop. In no way does anyone ever want to imply that we're putting an end, you know, we're turning this off. Not at all. We just want to do it better. And to be honest, there's only basically one meeting that it affects. So it doesn't affect a bunch. It only affects one meeting where there's kind of, and it's a hybrid meeting anyway, because of COVID and all that. But in November, 2022, hopefully there will be some guidelines, not just about the land acknowledgements, but about all these other issues that Valerie raised. And, and I, I'm going to, I'm going to shut up now because that's really what my, my job was as section convener to bring this up, to get it out there in the light. And, and it so happens that I also feel strongly about the issue. So it was just a nice synergy, I suppose. Michael. Yeah, I I do want to say that what uh, Valerie and EJ spoke to, and I think this is very important, is the importance of of having allies in positions that can influence uh, what's going on and you know and this has been key otherwise we'd be you know yelling into a well uh, year after year after year as these practices continue so I do think it's very important to acknowledge what Murray Leaf and EJ have done to help advance these at the highest level of the organization. I'm thinking about the title land acknowledgements meant to honor indigenous peoples and meant is the key word there. And often they do the opposite. I think people won't want to find out what do you mean by the opposite in, yeah, let's go with Michael then. Thank you, Michael. Um, there's a number of issues here. I think that, you know, usually these are um, statements that are made in, with good intentions. I don't want to call into in question the d- intentions of people who are making these land acknowledgements. But, you know, I, I think that they, you know, when you listen to these, and they tend to be very formulaic, um, saying that the, you know, mentioning this or that tribe was the steward or custodian of this land, and now it's ours, and we're going to take care of it move, moving into the future. And there are a number of things that have always bothered me about these. And, you know, I agree with EJ. It's not really a call to bring it into this practice, but to give pause to think about it and do it right, um, because I think it can be done right. Um, one thing that I don't like about it is that it misrepresents dispossession, land dispossession, and what happened through that whole process. And it really fails, fails to capture the trauma of what happened. It sort of turns the Indians into these mythic individuals who existed a long time in the past, this dispossession happened so long ago to people we don't even know who they are. We don't have to worry about whether or not any harm was done in that. And the truth was that land dispossession was a very violent, disruptive process that destroyed lives. And, you know, one thing I did with my father's, my second book was about, it was a an exploration of his life growing up on the Eastern Band Reservation in, in the Depression. And I learned a lot about the history of my family that it is very well documented. As I heard these uh, land acknowledgements, I'll think about the history of my family. I know where they were living. I know their names. And I know what happened to them as they were dispossessed. 
And this sort of speaks to the second thing about dispossession is it sort of focuses by focusing on the piece of land, you get the impression that this just happens once. The land transfers from Indian control to, to white control and it's over. But for the people who lived on that land, land dispossession follows them wherever they go. And this is something that is, you know, from what I learned about the history of my family from the founding of this country in 1776 up to present, land dispossession has affected every single generation. They lived in the Little Tennessee River Valley at the time of the U.S. Revolution. They got chased out of there to what is today North Georgia. They got chased out of there to North Carolina. They were forced to take refuge on the Kuala Reservation. And in my, our own century, you know, my grandmother's time, and all the way up to present, you have the era of allotment, you have the termination era, um, and currently you have this attack on the uh, Indian Child Welfare Act. Yeah. People don't realize that this possession continues all the way up into up to present. And I think these land acknowledgements tend to give, sort of cast it as something in the past that it's over. It is not over. It is continuing and it needs to be spoken of in those terms. And when you talk about dispossession, you know, it, it has to start somewhere. And I, I guess I would go back now to either Valerie or EJ. You know, dispossession is a mental box, so to speak. And it, if Native people can't fit in, in this box, then we're not workable, we're not alive, we're not living, so to, so to speak. And it, it's meted out by, well, there's room enough in our language for America to exist. But when I speak English, it seems like there's not enough room for Native people. I'm on a reservation in South Dakota, and that's where Out of Sight, Out of Mind has gone on for too long and easily dismissed because they're not in the mix. And num numerically, we're not you know, in par with Latina, with, with Latino, that next people, with Black folks or, you know, white folks in this case. So we're hardly seeing. Does that, does that affect anybody out there? I'm sure it does, but I'm asking you, where would, where would we start changing the mental box? Because there's vast knowledge where you all as anthropologists know that our languages, our thought processes start with our stories. Right. Oh, gosh, a lot comes to mind uh, through your uh, profound comments uh, there. Uh, one thing that uh, jumps to mind about the demographic situation of the United States today is that the most recent U.S. Census revealed that pretendians outnumber real Indians four to one. So what happens is our voice is being, you know, not just dismissed and we are not just being rendered invisible, but other people are actually appropriating our voice and speaking for us. So that's a, obviously, you know, a, uh, a real problem. And BJ Sobo, your thoughts about the problem that people are not really thinking ahead or even in the present moment of understanding what, what that problem is, not just among Native people, but non-Native people as well. They're just huge issues. They're really heavy issues. And when we see these land acknowledgements just sort of, um, you know, tacked on at the end of an email or just trotted out before class starts or before performance, was like, like, like the pre-show entertainment kind of a thing. It's just, it's like twisting the knife, really. 
and it's as if, okay, we checked the box. So they get bureaucratized. We're supposed to do this because our institution does this. So check the box. They get, they get politicized. So it becomes kind of a performative, like, oh, I'm so woke. I'm doing my land acknowledgement kind of thing. But, but it, it, again, it kind of leaves, you, you use the word dispossession, disenfranchisement, disappearance. It disappears them, those people into the past. Like I've done my little land acknowledgement. We're good to go now. The show here, let's go on. That kind of thing. Valerie Lambert. Right. I was so uh, disappointed to hear land acknowledgement after land acknowledgement uh, with and it seemingly not occurring to anybody that one of the options right, was actually right, to give the land right. back. Okay. Wrong to her disposition possession occurred, I would sit in the audience listening to things and say, okay, well, you know, if they feel so sincere about, you know, this, and they seem so sad, sometimes even with tears running down their face about, uh, you know, what happened to us, then, you know, why did, why doesn't something happen to, to rectify this situation? And, you know, the primary thing that comes to my mind is giving the land back. You know, we right, need right. to have a much more comprehensive program put in place uh, to return the land to our people. And yet it's like in the moment, the, the lights are still on in the foyer and people are getting their popcorn and still having their last cigarette. And this is just kind of like the, the throwaway. I, yeah, I don't need to say anymore. I, I, I just want to come back uh, to this idea of how do you make sure Indian voices get heard? Because I think this is critically important. We don't, you know, I spend a lot of time watching like MSNBC and they, they deal with African-American issues and uh, they deal with Hispanic issues. They almost never even discuss American Indian issues. And when they do, they it's almost unthinkable to have an actual American Indian in there as one of the talking heads to explain what's going on. And this is extremely unfortunate. Um, and, you know, I think that what you're doing, uh, T. Okeson, is absolutely vital. And I'm so happy that you've been doing this for 30 years. And I hope you continue to do this for 30 years more because being having a platform to in some way get those voices out there is incredibly important. And when you come back to Valerie's point about uh, pretendians, this is it's something that as a Cherokee, you know, I'm an enrolled member of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians and living in the South, every second person comes up to you and they say, oh, I have a Cherokee grandmother in your past. And, you know, for a long time, you just sort of politely say, oh, that's, that's interesting. But I, I think this is far more damaging than we think it is. And you go back to this idea of settler colonialism, a lot of, you know, settler colonial theory has this idea that the settler wants to come in and get rid of the Indian. But I don't think that's true. I think they want to craft the Indian into something they want. So this is the idea in the United States, it gets expressed that the Indian is not a political identity. It is a racial or ethnic identity. And by that way, you can do away with tribal sovereignty. And this is exactly what the people opposing the Indian Child Welfare Act are trying to achieve. And it's a very critical issue and people are not sort of seeing what's going on here. But if the Supreme Court this case will get to the Supreme Court, and if they rule that this is that American Indian identity is subject to the 14th Amendment, the entire body of Indian law will evaporate in an instant. Sovereignty will be gone. We will be completely replaced 
by these pretendians, people who just self-identify as Indians. And so, you know, I just feel very strongly that these people need to be called out. The practice needs to end. And the best way to support Indian issues is to make this visible, make Indians visible, and make their voices heard on the national stage. So right. And just to add that, Mike often says, and I totally agree with him, that we are at a critical existential moment right now. Uh, in our history, you know, and so it's really important that uh, that we speak out and that our voices be amplified um, through your program and in, in many other ways. But all of us need to, you know, step forward and prevent, you know, the forces that are trying to erase and replace us, you know, to, to win. You know, we, we're fighting for our survival right now, and it's critical that all of us acknowledge that. And we will continue land acknowledgement with E.J. Sobo, Michael, and Valerie Lambert after we return to you right here on First Voices Radio. I'm Teokasin Ghost Horse.
That's Buffy St. Marie with Getting Started way back in 1992. Off the album Coincidence and Likely Stories, I'd like to introduce Land Acknowledgement Part 2 here. If you're listening to First Voices Radio with Teokas and Ghost Horse, we do appreciate you. Those of you who are listening have listened, and those who will listen to Indigenous messages that we emanate the experiences of how we choose to live with Earth. And it is an honor to continue with land acknowledgement with E.J. Sobo, Valerie, and Michael Lambert, who are professors of anthropology at San Diego State University, University of North Carolina, and Chapel Hill. And we are discussing why land acknowledgement meant to honor Indigenous peoples too often do more harm than being helpful. Let's go back to this land acknowledgement conversation with those three professors of anthropology. So, but one perspective I wanted to say is that within the lower 48s, including Alaska and possibly Hawaii, there are nine states that don't want to teach native curriculum. And it just basically won't talk about it. But now we go north of that so-called imaginary border called Canada, where this government memo came out in New Brunswick. And to me, it's, it's not surprising that they just will not acknowledge that native people are even alive or there because that was past history. So it's it's just not Americans doing this, but the idea that comes out of displacing thoughts, processes, um, and yet there is this underlying sort of grief syndrome that I'd like to go to that, Michael, you mentioned the um, grave. No matter what they do, your people are still buried in the land of the Cherokee, the Chalagi. And when knowing that, and even though there are Cherokee in Oklahoma, just like I'm in New York, there are still Lakota in, in South Dakota and the Black Hills. So it's just that we are displaced in the Western mind or the settler's mind. So when I think about what happens when we use separation languages, it's always about separating and dividing, as you say, classification, Valerie. They want to classify us and put us into, and this is one thing I often um, emphasize is that, oh, there's a schematic called um, people of color, the red race. But yet that's kind of an antiquated idea. The other, the other thought process is, okay, who maintains or who is closest to their culture? So it's it's people of culture that cannot fit in the people of color box. You see where I'm going with that? Is because 
that's the same idea with the reservations wherever is that they don't want us to, to be visible. So when it comes to legislation, we have in the United States, we have Deb Holland, who is really, so far as I can read, doing what she can. And she's doing what could be required in a bit more um, and, and being what you as anthropologists would bring forward and really needs to be said. I mean, Vine Deloria Jr. has said it, even up in Canada, Paulette Steves is saying it. And now I'm hearing you, all three of you saying this, that what is what good is a country when they leave out the spirit of this land? Let's go to you, E.J. Sobel, your thoughts. I'll just add what, what good is a statement when it doesn't also strive to educate, strive to, you know, match the words with some action there? What good is just words? I think there's also a connection to this narrative of uh, the colonization of what is now the United States, and for that matter, even Canada, which sanitizes this history. And it's so disrespectful uh, to us Native people uh, to have our uh, trauma not just diminish, but this effort to erase that, um, including our dispossession, including all of the ways that our, our culture, our languages, et cetera, were uh, were uh, suppressed, oppressed, erased, um, and so this um, you know sort of the our inclusion cannot um, be done without addressing that ugly all those ugly chapters up into the present uh, of U.S. history. Um, so that so I think the terms of the inclusion are such that. Um, you know, accuracy and a real reckoning uh, needs to occur. Well, and I think this really speaks to the fact that it's not a call for an end to land acknowledgements, but a, a pause in, in getting it right. And I think they can be done right. I think the there's a link in the conversation article to the, um, the Burke Museum. Uh, and, you know, you read the guidelines that they put. I think that you know, basically, I don't argue with a lot of what they're what they're trying to do. And you know, for me, it's it's pretty simple. One is to do your homework. You know, do do the research. Try to find out. You know, you, what is the engagement of the institution? Usually, these are done on behalf of institutions. What has been their engagement with Indian land? And sometimes, you know, and look more broadly than just the land that the institution sits on. The good example of this is our university where um, these two historians, um, I wanna make sure they get um, due credit, Lucas Kelly and Garrett Wright, did research on uh, how UNC was substantially, and I mean, in certain years up to 95% of the budget was funded by stolen land stolen from the Cherokee and Chickasaw nations. And if you just look at the land you're sitting on, you're not going to capture that. And then there's uh, sort of along the same lines, you have the fantastic research that was done by Robert Lee and Tristan Athon on land grab universities. These are land grant universities. What people don't know is land grant universities were funded by stolen Indian land. And these are all parts of the stories that need to be told. What you often see in contrast with land acknowledgements is people getting lazy and they say, well, I'll just grab whoever is in the area and wants to get on the stage and we'll, we'll showcase them. No, do your homework and don't ask Indians to do your homework for you. 
you know, do that, collaborate with tribes, collaborate with Indians, but don't accept, expect them to, to figure this out. Tell the story honestly. And then I think that there needs to be an effort to make things right. It's not enough just to say, well, hey, we stole your land, you know, and it was horrible. I can tell you how horrible it was, but we're good. It's all over. No, you need, there needs to be a proportional um, reckoning that, that takes place. Not, not a symbolic reckoning, but a meaningful proportional reckoning with what happened. Um, and that I am 100% in support of. And I think that that would help give us a visibility, Indians a visibility and recognition that we need if that happened at every single event. Uh, and we're still here, you know, make that point. That's right. And, and you know, the, my experience is looking native like this, right, and walking into a room, it affects the whole room. Um, I'm one in 50, one in 100 one in a thousand, but that one, people recognize that and they don't have words for that other than performative words. Like, oh, and a native is here, an Indian is here. And it often comes to a romance or, you know, the question, is he an alcoholic? So those stereotypes still pervade. They still are there. And there's no, there's a t-shirt, human being, you know, pre-existing condition, oh, yeah. human yep. being. And, and that's what I'm saying. That's what I feel that you all three are trying to do, that there are actually human beings here before Columbus or anybody else supposedly discovered us. So when I'm thinking about, you know, we'll say it's a teaching moment or whatever, but no, we've been teaching all along by just being who we are sufficiently, self-sufficient most of the time. And what what I'm really been doing these 30 years or so is trying to bring forward the message of Earth. And, and I don't get along with the word stewardship or ownership because in my studies, a lot of Native people don't even have the concept or the word for ownership, let alone domination that doesn't exist in, in Lakota language, the word or concept of domination, because you need a relational language in order to speak with not just humans, but other life forms. But when we break it down, well, we have to think rationally to explain it to rational people. You think there is some kind of medicine, so to speak, in a way that maybe where we need to get to the indigeneity of all peoples that have come to this land? Yeah, I guess one of the things I, I want to do is push back. Um, it gets dangerous and slippery uh, when you start asserting, despite the fact that there is some truth to it, that we may or may not have had concepts of ownership of land in the way that Europeans conceptualize that. If you start giving that away, mm. uh, then it starts undermining, um, you know, the your your claims to um, to the land. And the the point of the uh, the fact of the matter is that we negotiated uh, hundreds of treaties, as you know, with the United States and the United States government and our own tribal leaders. Uh, you know, put pen to paper uh, and asserted these are assertions that we own the land. Hmm. So I don't think we can give that away without, um, you know, it coming to great harm <laughs> to us. I mean, yeah. I think we need yeah. to politically we need to argue for uh, our ownership of the land. I see what you're saying, you know, from mm -hmm. a philosophical point of view. Yeah. Um, 
but it's it's going to bite us in the butt. Just to add to that, I, I totally agree. We're sort of caught in this trap of linguistic imperialism, you know, and I think that this ownership is is one of these concepts that gets wrapped up in that. But it's very important to remember that land dispossession begins with the doctrine of discovery, which was this idea that Indians did not own the land and therefore the settlers could take the land. And so that sort of puts Indians in a position where there's only one way to respond. We own the land, you know, and so I agree. I totally agree with what you're saying, that there are different relationships to the land that need to be acknowledged and there needs to be a language for talking about that. But there also needs to be a statement. No, you know, there was Indian ownership in some sense in the way that the Europeans are using that term. Otherwise, they say, oh, you didn't own the land. Okay, yeah. it's ours. We own it now. You know, so ownership will take take place whether you like it or not. Yeah, and, and you think about, you know, how in this case, I'm thinking from that, that place of Lakota that we can't speak our language without intuition. Whereas if English, I, I have to throw intuition aside and the energy that's coming out of it says automatically that we're already in the social, the economic, this political standing of who and what our we are to our native communities in a sense, not just a human ownership, but I'm thinking, who in, the, who in the hell can own that tree or that water or that land or that stone? That's where I'm going to with this. And yeah. I'm glad yep. for your, your examples there. So and, and thinking about the examples of um, acknowledgement, you know, what, what are those examples of acknowledgement that we talked about? But now let's go to one last thing here, the land back movement. And you you alluded to the treaties that wow, this is something unspoken, un unheard of in doctrine of discovery. So primarily, we're going to be speaking with a non-Native audience that's critical of your work, uh, EJ and Valerie and Michael. They will be critical of your work just as much as I've been, they've been critical of my work on the radio. And uh, that's not true. He's not real Native. And, you know, other Natives bringing other Natives down. <laughs> and it's, it's just, no, this is what's been written is what's been said, and this is the experience. So I, I acknowledge both of yours, but I still have to go back to the storytelling, which carries our truth through it all, you see. And I think that's what's missing in, in the whole formula, so to speak. Any last comments? I, I feel like we can talk for another three or four hours and get to a place where they don't think that we're complaining. You see, because that's one of, one of the things, oh, they're complaining again, you know, if they just get with the program. Do you have any thought processes that you could give to those who, uh, mostly non-natives, will be listening to this, this program? I really want to echo what you pointed out, because that has one thing that has fueled all of my work, and that is, you know, just to try to drive home the point that we are human beings, we are real people, you know, we, and, um, it, 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 you know, it sounds so simple, but, you know, you pointed that that out and that is very profound. In so many ways, we are not considered wholly human. And so continuing to work toward that that goal, you know, sad as it is, you know, um, is something that I see as a huge priority for us. Uh, that's the ongoing struggle. And uh, just to come back to the land ownership thing, 
just I don't think we're all that far apart on this because what needs to be acknowledged are Lakota notions of land. You know, so it's not a question of ownership, but, you know, if the non-Indians are going to be in there, they have to give up that their notion of ownership to be there mm-hmm. and need to respect the Lakota way of understanding mm-hmm. land. Exactly. And the Choctaw yeah, and the Cherokee and, and the other tribes. I think that's an excellent point. I hadn't really thought about that. But yes, I think that's a, a critical missing element in all of this is that land acknowledgements need to include that aspect, because I think a lot of violence is also being done to our understandings of the land and our connections to the land. And that can be part of the educational um, aspect land acknowledgement. So in addition to the need to acknowledge the trauma and the reality and the violence of this dispossession, there's the need to use these acknowledgements to foster education. And some of the many points that Joe have brought into this discussion right now are things that can be part, that's part of the education. So for example, what you were saying about um, sovereignty and the reduction of identity to ethnic versus political, what is the ramification of that? You know, wow, educating about that, educating about concepts of ownership, stewardship, whatever, you know, whatever different region, whatever is appropriate, but education as well as a proposal, what are we going to do? That's very good. Thank you all for this. And just a parting thought is now we we complete the circle of thought process because I said I can speak English, but it feels like I'm only going halfway through the circle and going across and going, going up again. But when I'm speaking of Lakota, I'm going in a complete circle. So I'm saying we can acknowledge the land. They can acknowledge us and as long as they want to. But is the land acknowledging us? Mm-hmm. Is the land acknowledging us? You see, in other words, are we planning the land yet? Or is the land, are we adapting ourselves to the land? Which is a very native thing to do is adapt ourselves to the land rather than the opposite. That needs to be said, remains to be seen, actually. And I think that's when I think things will change when we don't have to use the word environment because we are living the environment. We don't have to live the word sacred because we're, oh, we don't have to use the word sacred because we're living it. So these new ideas that come from someplace else, well, they're not working here anymore. So this is what I'm saying. So you you have a long, good support system called Earth Behind You. You have my voice and my platform and all others that will come actually saying, yes, let's do this. (laughs) So thank you all, Michael, Valerie Lambert, and you too, EJ Soboth, for being here. Um, uh, Quite often I'm speaking with anthropologists, and I this word, anthropologist. (laughs) <laughs> but you're you're not that i'm speaking about others who come to find looking for exoneration right and we don't need that we're just like we're not that's your deal our deal is here now be present so but thank you very much for being here it's a i know we could do this again and we probably will <laughs> down the road we'll move along so thank you so much for your your views your perspectives your truth and your especially your, your studies and your research and it's all needed here so, thank you very much. It's good for you to be here, all of us to be here. But thank you. An honor. Thank you. Thank you thank so you. much.
And that was Valerie Lambert, an enrolled citizen of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, Michael Lambert, an enrolled citizen of the Eastern Band Cherokee, both professors of anthropology at University of North Carolina at Chapel, and Eliza E.J. Sobo, professor and chair of anthropology at San Diego State University. And E.J. is also a social cultural anthropologist. And as I leave this transmission of First Voices Radio, you'll be hearing spoken word by Jahan Kaligi, who is a poet, youth educator, and community arts organizer in Oakland, California. And he's a program director at Chapter 510, a youth writing, bookmaking, and publishing center. And the only way you can have peace on the earth is to have peace with the earth. And uh, I'd like to thank you all for joining us here um, on First Voices Radio. And my name is Teokas and Ghost Horse. And again, you have been listening to this native, this indigenous, this uh, original nation's broadcast. And it is First Voices Radio. Thank you for listening. Oshimalaye, Oyate, Wani, Wachichuelo. How do we become the shape of what we wish to see? To put something in order before it exists. A seed curled inside a balled-up fist as if this potential for regeneration needed to be hidden. How our tongues become instruments of the earth's heart when the spark of our vision is made visible with every syllable of this turning. The world is burning, and yet we who are recovering from impact are called to plant, to sow, to sing, to string the fragments of this scattering into some semblance of symmetry. Who of us will weave the strands of our memory back into circle? Who of us will break the cycle of violence by returning to the ground of our relation? to remember how ancient this calling from the future is. This revolutionary impetus to abolish an incarceral system that is symptom of an alienated split. To locate medicine in the rip where the light slips through the cracks of our undoing. Calling forth the seed of the mother of the mother of this earth calling forth the hunger of the sacred and the curvature of thirst, calling forth the gifts of children and the ones who've learned to mentor, calling forth the trees to become the airwaves of life waves remembered, calling forth the margins to return to the center of the universe's everywhere and everyone's in orbit, rematriate the land back to her sovereign steward sources, calling forth the unseen ones who fertilize the nation, calling forth the fractals that rattle the fractures of our perceived separation. Dreaming at the edge of collapse, we reach back and bring forward that which needs our tending. Heed the messages and read the maps that nature keeps on sending. Our collective prayers in action become weight placed upon the bending. We are mighty and small, temporal and beyond time. We are because life is and all we have is what we give back to the spinning and the surging and the loosening remains, to the grieving and the praising and the returning of our names, to the churning and the learning and the emergence of change. <laughs> 